Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to this week's Angels Podcast. I'm Adam Riggs here on the Believe Podcast Network, LA's number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our LA teams. Do you believe? I'm doing this podcast without my usual co-host, Matt Gallant, also known as Velociraptor, just to get this out to you guys quicker. I have a good show for you today. Before we get into the content, I'd like to give a shout out to David Saltzer with AngelsWin.com. I did an interview with him on Friday. I'm not sure when it posted, but uh, check it out when you have some time. On this week's podcast, I interview my good friend, Phil Garner. We discuss his 15-year playing career as well as his 15-year managerial career. I believe it's relevant because Phil managed Brad Osmus with the Tigers and the Astros, and I think every manager you have definitely influences how you look at the game and how you think about the game and ultimately how you, Brad probably manages the game. Before we get to the interview, I want to touch on the Angels this week. In our last podcast, they were 2-6. and six. They've won seven of their last eight they're currently sitting at eight and seven, three and a half games behind the Mariners, who are six and four in their last ten, coming back down to earth a little bit. They're one game behind the Astros, who are nine and one in their last ten. This looks like it's going to be a pretty good race this year. Early on, Trout was carrying the team, doing things only Trout can do. Then he pulls his groin. The rest of the team picks him up. We've had some really good pitching and some timely hitting. When I do this interview with Phil, he told a story of the Astros back when they uh, went to the World Series. They were 44 and 44 at the break. They hire Phil. He comes in. A month into his tenure, they are four games under 500, and all of a sudden, they go on a roll. He basically said the difference of that team was that the bullpen just caught on fire. He said that he builds his team chemistry through the pitching staff. And he said that if they got to the fifth inning, they knew that after that, his opponents weren't scoring a run. So, you know, the team is always in the game. They're always thinking, you know, we might be down two, but we scored three. Our bullpen's going to hold them, and we're in the game. There's nothing more discouraging than starting pitcher leaving the game and the bullpen gives it up and you end up losing the game. Or if you're behind and you know the bullpen can't keep you close, it's tough uh, to come back and always to continue to chase uphill. So I found that very interesting. But thinking back to the last World Series the Angels won, that was kind of their strength. They had a great team, but that bullpen was really good. It was really something special. You know, you had Scott Shields, Donnelly, K-Rod, Percival kind of felt like if we get into the pen, we will stay right where we are. We score a couple runs and we always have a chance. The strength of this team so far this year has been the bullpen. It's really good to see. It's encouraging. They're hanging around, which is fantastic. Trout made the trip to Texas. So it looks like he's day-to-day. We don't know if he's going to be in the lineup on, on Monday. We'll have to wait and see. Those are, those are encouraging signs. So if they can continue to hang around, get Otani back, then they get Upton, it's going to be a pretty formidable lineup. They could be surprising people this year. So the interview with Phil is it's a little bit long, so I'm going to break it up into two. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Phil Garner. So today I got uh, Phil Garner. He's agreed to do a podcast for me. Thank you, Phil. I really appreciate you doing a podcast. This is my first interview, and uh, I could pick no better guy than you. I'm glad to be the one that broke in your virginity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can edit that out. <laughs> no, 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 I like that. So, hey, uh, so we can start in a lot of places. Let's start with your playing career. You played in 15 years in the major leagues. You won a World Series with the Pirates. You were a three-time All-Star. You managed multiple years in the big leagues. You, you've pretty much done it all. I'm very fortunate. Uh, you know, when you start out in this game, you, you, you pray and say, Lord, just give me one year in the big leagues, or give me a cup of coffee. And then when you get there, you say, "Hey, let me let me uh, last a few more years." And then you start 
getting greedy and say, can you can you get me in the playoffs just one time? And, oh, yeah, once I get there, can you just get me to the World Series? And you say, I don't care if we win or not, just get me to the World Series. Then you get to the World Series and you say, oh, Lord, please let me win it just this one time. So going on and on down the list, I was very fortunate. I, I got to play in all those scenarios. And so I had a, a nice career. I was fortunate to have managers that believed in me and coaches that really helped me. And then I got a chance to uh, coach uh, and then manage in the big leagues. And all of them were wonderful experiences. Uh, I certainly would love to be able to continue to do it and go back and do it again. One of the downsides to getting old is, is you just can't do the things you used to do. So, But they're great memories. Uh, I love to uh, re- recall them sometimes. I don't get a chance very often, so it's just kind of delightful for me to get to sit and chat with you about some of those things. Oh, yeah, man. I, I, love, to, I love to hear your stories. So you're born in Jefferson City, Tennessee. You went to University of Tennessee. Was that a dream of yours as a kid to go to UT? It, you're absolutely right. Uh, we lived 40 miles from, from Knoxville, Tennessee, where the University of Tennessee is, and 40 miles from, from Knoxville. And, of course, you grow up, not much TV in those days. As a matter of fact, we didn't have a TV for many years when I was growing up. I, I think we got our first TV when I was like maybe in the, in the seventh grade or eighth grade, something like that. And my dad had taken me to a football game in Tennessee. Of course, it was the biggest thing I'd ever seen. The stadium was like the, the Coliseum in Rome. And so at that moment, you know, they what Tennessee would do at halftime, they would introduce former players or dignitaries that had done something for the University of Tennessee. So it's somewhere around the, the eighth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, somewhere in there, I said it on my mind. One day I wanted to be able to walk on to the to the, the field at Tennessee at halftime and be introduced. And after the World Series in 1979, that dream came true. I, I was introduced at halftime. Carol, my wife, and I were able to walk out on the field. And that was really exhilarating because in those days there were about 85,000 people in the stands. It's pretty cool, you know, to, to be able to do that. So it was a lot of fun. And, yeah, from a, a boy from a small country town in East Tennessee that only had well, we said 2,000 inhabitants in the whole county, but that included dogs and chickens and some of the cows. You know, so it wasn't a <laughs> yeah. lot of people. Uh, you know, you, you didn't have a big pool of talent to, to, <laughs> to draw from in Rutledge, Tennessee. So yeah. it was a dream, and it was um, University of Tennessee was a good experience for me. I actually uh, went there to play baseball. And once I got there and, and started playing baseball, I realized how much, how important an education was. So well, I, tr- I, I got through the first three years, and then I signed a professional contract. And when I went into the minor leagues and I saw 30-year-old guys playing in double-A AA and triple-A, and they weren't going to make their dream, and they had nothing to fall back on, no education. The, the year that I went back, my wife and I went back, and we finished our degrees with somewhat more vigor and more intensity in my study habits. So I wanted to have that degree. And, and all, I'll, I, I can't say that I've ever used the degree in any deal. I think it's helped me along in my career. I can't stress enough for young folks that are, if, if you ever waffle on that, go get your degree, whatever it is, whether it's an associate's degree, whether you want to get a license to be a plumber, electrician, whatever, get some education and make yourself useful. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I, anybody that's played the game is, has woken up that retirement morning and your, your eyes open up and you go, okay, what next? I mean, every goal that you've ever worked for is now not there. Uh, and so you've really got to be prepared for life after because baseball is one of those things. If you're, if you're blessed enough to, to do it 15 years, well, you're starting over in the business world and, and you got a PhD in baseball. That, that doesn't really translate well when you're, when you're looking for a job. Yeah, you go down to an oil company in Houston, Texas and say, I want a job. I want to go work on a rig. And they say, well, what do you know? And I said, well, I know how to hit a curveball or I know how to teach <laughs> right, a curveball. Right. Well, yeah. what do you know about oil wells? Well, I don't know much about them. I know that they produce oil and gas and sometimes they blow out. Well, that's not good enough. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. All those players that all those people that that didn't spend time playing baseball, that they got their degrees and started working at 21 to work, they're ahead of you. They're, yeah. they're 15, oh, yeah. 20 years ahead of you. And so you, you've got to, you either have to work a lot in the off season, which I did early on. I went out and got my real estate license in, in Pennsylvania and, and did some things like that, tried to get involved in things in case baseball didn't work out. That's amazing because, you know, for, for me, I remember every time that I started to, 
try to look at something else and, and, and study something else. And it, it, it was like, I just, I started struggling in baseball and it, it was almost like I, I had to focus so much on, on what I did. And I, I mean, I, I think that our talent levels were a little bit different. I mean, you, you did a lot more than I did in sports, but for me, I felt like I had to be a hundred percent, you know, uh, committed to what I was doing. Um, but the off seasons, you know, definitely I, I would, I would try to get together and, and do some stuff and educate myself. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I really respect that going back, getting your degree, uh, especially as successful as you were. I mean, that's impressive. Well, let me interject something there, Adam, because this is kind of important because the game is totally, and, and preparation for the game is totally more from from the time I signed in 1971 to where you came along and you played. I, I mean, it more tremendously. Let me give you an example. I wrote a paper in college in a kinesiology course about weight training specific to baseball. Well, when I signed my pro contract, we had a manager named Harry Bright. Harry Bright smoked a good four packs of cigarettes a day and drank he and, between he and his wife they drank a case of beer a day and he would come behind the bat cage with a cigarette in his mouth and he said hey college boy <laughs> I hear you wrote a paper on weight training in baseball <laughs> and he said if you ever lift weights you'll never play in the big leagues that was 1971 and he said you'll never play in the big leagues if you lift weights oh, wow. well I got to the big leagues in 1973 briefly and around in, in 1974 I actually played there were no weight training facilities in the United States and all the big cities, save for a few Gold's gyms. L.A. had a Gold's mm -hmm. gym, Boston had a Gold's gym, Atlanta had a Gold's gym, and that was it. There were you had to go and try to find somebody's garage, you know, that, yeah. that had facilities, and that has changed to where if you don't do a weight training program now in baseball, you're likely not to survive. Yeah, it's it's interesting how you yeah. know. I mean, golf golf was a latecomer to that, right? I mean, yeah. baseball at least was before golf. I mean, golf golf got into that late. Now you see these guys; they're pretty fit. I mean, think. Tiger Woods changed a lot of that, but, uh, but well, yeah. it's, it's different type training. You know, you train for football a specific mm -hmm. way. I have a friend that's my age. I'm 70 now, and he played for the University of Texas and it, back in those days. And they played Nebraska, and the uh, and Nebraska football players were one of the first ones in the nation football team to start lifting weights back mm -hmm. in 1968, 69. And so when Darrell Roy goes up, and Nebraska beats them. Like crazy, he says, "We're going to have to start lifting weights, boys." <laughs> yeah. so, so everybody, yeah. so each sport has morphed, uh, yeah. and they do their their style. So yes, you're right. You by the time you came along, you had to spend your off season training. You just couldn't yeah. go, go yeah. do a job. You had to train to stay stay with everybody. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So back to Tennessee. A while back, they retired your jersey. When I was reading, it said you wore four different numbers. Is that is that right? Well, Did this, I read that right? Well, I, I don't remember four, but I remember a couple. And uh, we had a hard time trying to pick out a number to, <laughs> to, to, uh, to retire. You know? yeah. so, uh, Do you remember which one you picked? I think 29 was the number I picked. No, wrong. Eight, 18. 18. Come on, man. Okay, all right. well, Come on. I should not know more than you. Yeah, about well, number. when you pick You know, ironically, those things have never meant much to me anyway. Yeah. I, I really, I, yeah. I'm not trying to be modest. It just, I just don't dwell on it much and, and don't talk about it very much. Although I do have a, a Jersey hanging up in my, um, in my house somewhere. <laughs> I don't even know where it is. That, that is your house is so jersey. big, man. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't so know where it is. There's probably well, places in your house you haven't yeah. been in a month. Well, you know? uh, but, but the, the truth of the matter, it's, it's, it's nice, you know, that the university remembers. But for all those that might aspire to do that, remember they're going to come and ask you for some money <laughs> right. for retiring your jersey. So it's not all pure and honest. All right, here's the next trivia question. There's only been two jerseys retired. Do you remember who, who was the other baseball player that had his jersey retired from Tennessee? Was it uh, Honeycutt, Rick Honeycutt? Nope. Ooh. Uh, well, played okay. first base. Uh, Rockies. Oh, uh, yeah, Helton. Todd Helton. Helton. Yeah. That's right. Well, That's he right. couldn't hit as good as me. God. <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. He was a I, great Wait, player. wait, wait. I have your college yeah. numbers just yeah. just because you said that. Uh, 296 average, 17 home runs, 73 RBIs, 91 hits. Uh, that's for three years? Yeah. I think Helton probably had that for for conference oh, play. Wait, okay, there's wait, no wait, doubt. Yeah, yeah. There is no well, doubt wait, 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 he well, had that for well, conference play. Well, you have to. You know, there's an asterisk right there, and that is that we only played. We had a 30-game schedule and only played about 24 of those because we had rainouts. 
Now I think they have a 70 schedule. So, okay. so go back. And hey, were you using game. wood? Were you using wood? We were using wood. Okay. Yeah, There's your other excuse. And I actually crazy. led the nation in home runs per at bat one year. So my sophomore year. So I had now, who, home who runs. Who calculated that? Was well, that your calculation? or? Okay, I know there well, wasn't we'll the internet back then. Okay, I'll just go with that. All right. So, back when I remember. All right. So, so uh, I, I did a little more research, and uh, you were drafted twice out of colleges. Like, like what happened there? Well, I, I actually was drafted by the Montreal Expos mm-hmm. originally. Yep. And uh, the guy called me, Red Murph called me, and he said, uh, we'd like for you to, you know, we're excited to have you sign uh, with the Montreal Expos. We drafted you. And... We uh, want you to go on down to Florida and get your career started. And uh, I said, I was in college at the time. And so um, I said, good. And, you know, I'm thinking in terms of money, what are they going to give me for some money, you know, a little bit of money. And he says, I said, well, is there anything else? And he said, yeah, we're going to give you a bus ticket to get down to uh, down to Florida. And I thought about it a minute. I said, well, you, you can give me a plane ticket, you know, a bus ticket like that was like fifty dollars in those days to go in two days to get down to, from Tennessee to Florida. And he said, "Well, just take this uh, bus ticket and go ahead and get started with your career. You'll go on down there and get started." And the more I thought about it, the, the the more I got a little steamed up about it. And I said, "Well, you not even a plane ticket? You don't consider me a plane ticket? Plane ticket in those days was like eighty bucks to fly down there one day, mm-hmm. you know." And so. Uh, I didn't sign. I said, no, I'm not signing that. And so I go out, I, I, I start scrambling to try to place, uh, find a place to play college summer baseball, which in, in those days, Liberal, Kansas was a good place to go, and they needed somebody. Mm-hmm. So I called Liberal, and my mom and dad drove me out to Liberal, Kansas. And so Montreal, I was playing pretty good. Montreal sent a scout out to, to see me. You know, So the mm-hmm. scout comes up to me then the, this night that I played, and I'd hit a, hit a home run to uh, tie the ball game up in like the fifth inning or something, had a couple other hits. We played in the old fairgrounds. Now, the old fairgrounds had a, a dirt a race a car racetrack that went around the outside part of the, the pass. So to hit it on the racetrack was everybody, you know, was a pretty good deal. So I hit one on the racetrack, and we weren't going to win the game. So after the game, the scout for, and I don't remember his name from Montreal, uh, comes up to me and said, uh, why didn't you sign a contract? And I said, well, you know, quite frankly, I was a little offended by the bus ticket deal. If it had been a the plane ticket, I'd have probably jumped all over it's it. It's a $30 difference. Yeah, yeah. So he said, well, what is it that you're asking for? And I said, I, I have no idea where I pulled the figure out of my mind. I said, $15,000. I just threw it out of my mind. I hadn't even thought about $15,000. It just came off my tongue. Uh-huh. And so... So he said, oh, man, well, to be able to do that, you've got to be able to show some power and hit home runs. And this is how arrogant and foolish I was in those days. I said, well, I hit a home run tonight. I've been hitting some home runs. You come back tomorrow, and I'll hit a home run for you. And, and that was the, that conversation, right? That uh-huh. was how it ended. Uh-huh. So the next night, Burt Poole, who, who ended up pitching for the uh, oh my gosh. Dodgers was pitching for gave uh, up the famous team. home run yeah. to uh, Reggie, right? Yeah, yeah. I had him with the Dodgers. Yeah, yeah awesome so, guy. And he later became a hitting coach in the minor leagues for the Astros. So Bert Hooten was mm. pitching. He was a big University of Texas college pitcher yep. in those days. So oh, yeah. he was playing on a Colorado team that had come in to play against us. And so Bert is pitching very well and he's shutting everybody out. Well, in the eighth inning, I hit a bomb over the racetracks <laughs> to win the game. And so as I'm running to first base, I'm going to change. Yeah, oh, yeah. Show yeah. this guy what I've got. Yeah. I'm rounding second, and I'm at it up. Well, you know, now I can buy a car, and I can save a little money and all this yeah. kind of stuff. When I round third, and I'm headed to home. He's right behind home plate. He's sitting right behind home plate, the scouts do. He gets up and walks out, and I never heard from Montreal again. Oh, You've got to be <laughs> so, kidding me. So that was why I didn't sign the first time. And so I uh, was subsequently drafted in the supplemental draft ah, by the Oakland okay. A's. Third overall, and, too. Yeah, and uh, their first pick for the Oakland A's, which is not that big of a deal. There wasn't that many guys in the deal. So, And you want to take a guess why I got to the signing bonus? <laughs> 15,000. 15,000. Oh, there you go. It was meant to be, man. Yeah, That's so, crazy. Yeah, it, was, it was crazy. That's and so insane. I started my, uh, my career with... Uh, with with the Oakland. So so on that team, you it looks like you had three first round picks is what it's saying. Do you remember the two other guys? On the Oakland team? No, on your uh, uh, on your Tennessee team. Oh, the Tennessee team. We had Sam Ewing who yep. was who was actually a great, great player. Yep. Um uh, he was 
Sam was six foot four. He actually ran in the state champions, uh, state track championship in Tennessee. He was in the oh finals, and he ran a. Uh, in those days, they ran hundred yards. They didn't run hundred meters. They ran hundred yards. He ran like a nine five and finished dead last. <laughs> but a nine five was pretty darn oh, yeah. good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so Sam signed with the White Sox. Then Bobby Tucker. Sign. Is that the guy you're Steve Rains. They said Steve Rains. Does that make Steve sense? Steve Rains. No, he was later. Oh, he's later? Okay, so later. maybe that was uh, in the 70s. Okay. Yeah, yeah he, he was later. But we had Bobby Tucker that signed with the White Sox, oh, too. Okay. And I think he was a uh, first-round pick. So. Cool. So, uh, so you're drafted January of uh, 71. You make your major league debut September 10th, 73, two years. That's, uh, that's impressive. How many minor league teams did the system have? We had, uh, as I recall, we had three in Oakland. So we had an A ball team in Burlington. We may have had a, may have had a low A team, uh, just kind of a rookie ball team. So mm-hmm. there might have been four teams in those days, but the only ones I remember were A ball, double A, and triple A. So we had a Burlington, Iowa. We go to spring training, and I'm earmarked to go to Burlington, Iowa. <laughs> and we had the, the team on the double decker old bus. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was an old bus. And so we, we start out to go to, to Iowa, to Burlington, Iowa, from Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. And the the next scene, it, we should do a movie on this, because the next scene <laughs> is we're sitting on the side of the road. The bus loses its AC, and we're somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and it's like 150 degrees. <laughs> and we were taking our clothes off. We're all sitting in our underwear <laughs> on the side of the interstate playing cards at 4.30 in the morning because the bus has quit, and they can't get anybody to come work on it. So what normally takes two days to get to Burlington, Iowa, took about four days. And, oh my uh, gosh! You know, it was it was an, uh, so my indoctrination into minor league baseball was. But you know what? It didn't matter. We had a great time. We had we had fun. Somehow we we found yeah. ways to to enjoy ourselves. Oh yeah, I mean, I think anybody who's played uh, minor league ball has had a broken down bus story. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's uh, uh it, and back then you don't care. I mean, you're making you're making no money. You know, oh, you're just happy to be there. All, all the boys. I mean, you're not you're not looking up at the team above you, trying to figure out why this guy isn't up there or that guy. I mean, you're just you're just out there playing baseball and having fun. And uh, man, those are good times. So so you go up, you get called up. Do you remember your first game? Do you remember who was pitching? <laughs> yeah, I do. And when you ask me this question, I should go back and refresh my memory because I don't remember. Tell me, do you have it there? No, I don't have it. It uh, just says you made your major league well, debut. But uh, I made my major league debut. And uh, were you nervous? I was nervous. Yeah, I was nervous. I, I wouldn't give you a plug nickel that's for a guy that's not nervous. On that <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Know? Exactly. So, um, so it was. Uh, oh, I, I got. I'll remember the picture later on somehow. But anyway, I get about four pitches. And it was about six inches off the plate. Oh, it's yeah. called a strike. But I got to tell you, it's welcome, called a striking. Yeah, welcome to the big league. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, and you remember Doug Harvey, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Empire, yeah, Harvey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, passed away not long ago, but he's a great guy. So, fast forward to the end of my career, my last at bat, mm-hmm. I come up to the plate, and it's announced that I'm retired, that I'm this is going to be my last at bat. Okay. You know, even though I didn't retire later, but Harvey knows that it's my last at bat. And so, I get four I get, I get four pitches. I uh, know more pitches than that, but I think the count goes to uh, count goes to three balls, two strikes probably. And then there's one that's got six inches of the plate, and he calls it a ball. Uh, there <laughs> you go. So he owes it, you. it came back. Yeah, he you know? owes so when it goes around, comes around. It just took it a few years to happen. <laughs> oh man, that's great. You got called up the next the next year in '74, and you told me uh, a, a story about that that second time getting called up. Can you share that with well, uh, with my guy, well, with my, now, my a lot, listeners? A lot going on in baseball at that time. Uh, the uh, Peter Seitz had issued a, his famous uh, arbitration ruling, which in those days most kids don't understand today. Most people don't even know the baseball history. But we had a what was called the reserve clause. It was a one year contract with a one year option. Now, for anybody that's in the business world, everybody knows that if you have a one-year option, at the end of that option year, contract's over. It's a one-year. <laughs> yeah. Baseball was different. They could renew that on that one-year option in perpetuity. So the player was stuck, but the owner wasn't stuck. If they decided after that one-year option they didn't want you, they could release you. Mm-hmm. But if they wanted to keep you, they could under that option. Well, Peter Seitz, the arbiter, ruled that a one-year option was a one-year. That was it. And so... Uh, baseball began to morph a little bit, and so there were a couple of players, uh, Kurt Flood, that didn't sign, and, and uh, a lot of things came out of that. There were some negotiations, but it was that if you didn't sign your contract, 
then then you played one more year, then you became a free agent. That was the ruling. Everybody had that at, the, at that moment. And uh, so I was one smart, cocky, stupid, <laughs> foolish player, and I'm going to not sign my contract, so I'm going to be a free agent. <laughs> so, so I'm playing behind Sal Bando. I'm double-A, and Sal Bando is, is the captain of the Oakland oh, yeah. and I have nowhere to go. And we've yeah. got another player named Manny Trio. In the minor leagues, he's playing second. I'm playing third. He's playing second. Manny Trio was a great player. Oh, actually, yeah. better than me. So I wasn't going to beat Manny Trio out at second base. So, um, and I wasn't good enough to play shortstop. So, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to become a free agent. So, as it turns out, about about two or three weeks into the season, I'm not signed, and uh, Salbando supposedly gets hurt. And so uh, they call me and say, you know, Sal Bando's hurt. We want you to come up here and play. And I'm thinking, oh, good idea. Now I can go to the big leagues and show my yeah, stuff, you yeah. know. And um, that way, I, when I become a free agent, people will want me. Well, they, they said, you're going to have to sign a contract when you get here. And so as a friend of mine said, I was sufficiently nebulous about agreeing to sign that contract. <laughs> well, I get to the big leagues. It's in Minnesota against Minnesota, the Twins, that night. And... I'm, I take batting practice, and they give me a contract before before that, and I don't sign it. And so I'm in the lineup, I'm hitting like eighth in the lineup, and and so I'm in the lineup that night. And when I come off the field, um, uh, they said, "Why didn't you sign the contract?" Traveling secretary comes in, says, "Why didn't you sign the contract?" Mm-hmm. I said, uh, "Not going to sign the contract." Bando found out Bando had a bruised calf, and he was only going to be out of the lineup for two days. Oh, I was going back to the minor leagues, <laughs> right. so. Said I'm not signing the contract, and so it, the, the traveling secretary said, "Well, pack your bags. You're going back to Tucson." So I'm packing my bags and going back to Tucson. And uh, Reggie Jackson sees me packing my bags, and he said, he "Doesn't know me from Adam." Reggie was, you know, the star. Oh yeah, oh of yeah. The stars in those yeah. days. And said, what are you doing, kid? I said, uh, "I didn't sign the contract, so I'm going back." And I said, "What do you mean you didn't sign the contract?" And I said, "Well, I wasn't going to sign my contract." The, it wasn't worth a lot for the minor leagues anyway, so I was holding out. But I, when the signing, he said, "Well, wait a minute." In those days, there were no such thing as a cell phone, so oh, yeah. they had a pay phone in the locker room. Reggie calls Charles Finley, who owned the ball club, and the only thing I remember from the, that conversation is I'm scared to death. <laughs> Reggie Jackson's calling the owner, and when Reggie has the phone, he says. Uh, I want to talk to you about Phil Garner. He pulls the phone away from his head. So I know Finley yelled a few things in the phone. And Reggie says, uh, Mr. Finley, why don't you just ask the kid what he wants? That's what I remember you know, Reggie smart. saying. Yeah, very time. smart. So, so uh, apparently Reggie hands me the phone and, and I get the phone and, and I'm panicked. I don't know what to do. And oh, so yeah. uh, now we're talking about the minor leagues in those days and I was making $600 a month in those days. I'd made $500 a month the year before. In the second year, making 600 a month. And I had um, led the minor leagues in all offensive categories. I'd been a good minor league player. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted, wanted like $800, and they had offered like six fifty. dollars <laughs> so, oh, wow. so when Finley gave me the phone, I said, uh, uh, he said, what do you want? I said, I, you know, I'm cringing. I'm thinking, I said, Eight hundred dollars, and he said, "I might have said nine hundred. I don't remember exactly." Uh-huh. The phone goes dead silent for what seemed like ages, and uh, finally he says, "Well, good gracious, it'll cost me that much to send you to Tucson, sign the contract." Oh, so beautiful! They put me in a little old bitty room. They didn't want anybody to know, you know, what was going on. Uh-huh. So they take me in the room, and I mean, it's like you know something you might see in a, you know in a in a spy novel, you yeah. know, the lights are down and I'm signing the contract. And and, uh, and then they, I played for two days and they sent me down. So the first ground ball I got in the, in the in that year was off the of Harmon Killebrew. Oh, my gosh. ball in that game. And, uh, uh, yeah. awesome. and now I was nervous on that. You know, Harmon Killebrew, he was a big stud in those days. Oh, and yeah. So, uh, oh, yeah. You know. Scared to death. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's that's hilarious. I love it. Let's talk about the World Series. Your first World Series, nineteen seventy nine. During the season, you hit two ninety three. Good season. You played the whole year. You play okay. So you played the whole year there. You go and you hit four seventeen. The National League Championship Series. What what happened? Were you just did Were you just on fire as you went into the series, or did you just get there and you were like, hey man, this is it? Um, like, what, what happens in those situations? I always got better as the season went. Mm-hmm. On so, my, if 
if I go back, I think if you would look at my career, if I could eliminate April or May or any given year, I was usually have a one for 30 in, in either uh-huh. April or May. And then I was always trying to catch up. But were you a timing time, hitter? What, what, what was I, the I issue know, with that? Is it, was it timing? Was it spring training? Maybe I, you, did no, you work uh, on things t- in spring t- training, try to figure Tanner, it out. Chuck Tanner, our manager, then thought that the same thing. Thought that well, I needed to, I needed more time in spring training. I was a mm-hmm. high strung guy. He mm-hmm. thought I was just too strong. So one year he decided <laughs> I was going to play every game, every oh, inning of every game in spring training, including double headers. And we had oh, like got, three double headers. That could never happen I, nowadays. Oh no, they won't even get on a bus and, and I, travel an hour. Yeah, I played them all. I played. I played oh, everything. And, you know, the the first four or five games I I didn't play the full game, but after that I played I played every inning of all the games. Start the season, same thing. So oh, I don't wow. know what it was, but but the other side of that, the flip side of that coin is, by the time we got September and August, I always played well. I I was in my stride and mm-hmm. I hit the ball and I was playing well. So when it got into the playoffs in the World Series that year, I was I was really hitting the ball well. And in the playoffs, I hit every ball on the button. It was just one of those things when you people hear people talk about you're in the zone. Oh yeah, it looked like a softball coming up there, and you couldn't throw anything that I couldn't hit. You were basically you were basically in the moment. You you weren't thinking of consequences. You weren't thinking about what the gravity of the game. You weren't thinking about any of that. It was it was basically. You know, when you when you're in that zone, you're thinking of basically the process and hitting something hard. It's yeah. there's no internal thinking at all. Yeah, is there? Th- no, there isn't. As a matter of fact, the, the it's it led to many discussions that I've had with a longtime friend of mine, Ray Knight, when we played together, mm-hmm. and we used to talk about concentration because what people would say is concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. And so for me, what turned out to be important in concentration was. The ability to, to think of nothing. It, it's the ability, mm. all the practice and work that you do. When you go to the plate, you don't want to say, well, I want to get a good pitch to hit because by the time you're saying that, the ball's by you. Yeah. And that yeah. good pitch that you should have been hitting was gone. Or saying, I'm not going to swing at a slider. I'm looking for a fastball or I'm looking for something mm-hmm. up. You know, when, you, when you're doing that, you're, not, you're running thoughts through your head, but you're really not focused. Mm. And so for me, concentration focus turned out to be when you're going good, you do all your planning when you're on deck. You walk yeah. into plate and you just you drop everything. You you actually don't think. You see and you hit. I've never and, heard and that in my so, life. You're the uh, first person and, that has ever ever said yeah. that. And so that was what was going on in in in, in that moment. And Makes I sense. go on to the World Series and hit 500 in the World Series. 12 for 24, yeah, three walks, 24, five yeah. RBIs. Yeah, and and hit the ball good in the World Series. Not as good as I did in the playoffs. I, I, I got a couple of blue hits in the World Series. But in the playoffs, every ball that I swung at, I hit it hard. And it was some kind of good feeling, man, because, you know, um, when, when you go walk in the plate knowing they're not going to get you out, you know, that's a great feeling. Oh, my gosh, especially on a national stage like yeah, that. And when was, you can do it, perform yeah. at that level on that stage, that had to change your career. I mean, that had to... At well, that point, what what else what well, else is I there? I think what happened. I became a pretty good hitter prior to that in late innings. I, I got a pretty good reputation of being able to, to drive the ball and get the winning run in late in the game. I, I kind of got known for that a okay. little bit. And and what happened was I realized that in no situation I was nervous. I'd get hyped, really hyped. I mean, and to the point where if somebody had a flat uh, had a flashlight, you know, in the in the upper deck. Behind me, I could almost see it. And you hear about military people talking about how your senses get heightened mm-hmm. when you're in those fight-or-flight situations. What well, kind of what I was going through, I don't mean to equate that with, you know, getting ready to lose your life, but right. it's similar. It, you know, I, I could get really pumped. Well, you, the danger part of that is you can freeze in those moments. You just yeah. lock up, and oh, some yeah. people do. And you watch players do that when we talk about, you know, and I've seen it with pitchers, I've seen it with hitters. The heart rate gets so high, so fast, and they can't think. They're, everything's running around their heads, and they can't channel it. Yeah. And so what I learned to do was channel the energy. And once you can do that, channel it means you get the energy focused, and all you see is pitcher and ball. That's it. And you, I mean, you really see it good because that energy's got you all pumped up. Yeah. Just think about it on another. On the flip side, you're not having had a good night's sleep. And you walk out there and you're sleeping, you're sluggish. You don't see the ball good. You don't. You you know you're not you're not yeah. focused or zero in. The other side was is you're extremely hyped, and so once you're able to channel that and put all those thoughts and mm-hmm. put the crowd noise out of your mind where you just don't hear anything, it's almost like 
you know, when the movies do a good job on, on sports scenes when the crowd's going crazy in a situation and then they turn the noise of the crowd down. Yeah, that Kevin Costner movie where he's pitching. Yeah, yeah I saw that. And, and uh-huh. it's really it's true. exactly what happens. It's true. And so I learned to do that in the World Series. It was the big stage. It said 80 million people were watching and it never dawned on me. It never made, you know, I was yeah, so you weren't thinking about focused. It. You don't think about it. You're so focused on what, what you're doing. I think if we could translate that to more guys, and it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for guys that, that are going up and down that are that are saying, "Hey, look, you know, if I don't get a hit here, you know, these are my consequences." If we can, if we can get that consequence out and let them stay in that moment and 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 focus like that, I think that uh, I mean that's something you've got to acquire, right? I mean, that comes with with time and with with actual consciousness of, of this is what I want to yeah, do. Yeah, you have you have to discipline yourself to think about the process, not yeah. the results, mm-hmm. and that's what you're talking about. Because if you walk to, you know, what happens to people is. If I don't get a hit here, I lose my job. Well, you're thinking about the results. You're thinking yeah. about getting a hit. You're not thinking about the process. A seed ball is put a good swing on it. You know that's what you should be thinking about before you go. To the yeah, because that's I'll all you can control, swing. right? So, you know, that's what you control. Mm-hmm. And I put a good ball, a good a good swing on it. Ball's going to go somewhere. And if they catch it, they catch it. Those are the things I can handle. But you're you're thinking about the process in that way, not the result. Because once you think about the result. Your swing can go haywire, or your your pitching can go haywire. Oh, yeah. So let's continue with that subject. So I've been doing a little bit of research, and uh, all these uh, analysis, all these guys that uh, analyze data, they are saying there is no such thing as a clutch player. It doesn't exist. (laughs) What is your your, uh, thoughts on that? Well, first, I I like a lot of the Sabre Matrix. I like a lot of the... the, uh, the numbers in the game, and it is a numbers game. We live and die by the numbers. Yeah. But there are clutch players. There's no doubt about clutch. There's no doubt about that. And there's some terrific clutch players in the game today. And there's clutch pitchers. And there's clutch players. And by that, by definition of that, those are the people that step up when the game is at its its tightest moment, its most critical moment, where a a Good pitch ball location, uh, you know, a great pitch is going to get the batter and get his team out of a jam, or the batter's going to put the ball in play and make something happen. And there are players that do that over and over and over again, and there's players that can't do that over and over again, and that's just the way it is. And and surprisingly, some extremely talented players aren't as good in clutch as some other players. Yeah. And so, but day in and day out, when you're when you stand there and watch them, now what 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 I think the the, the numbers guys, the Sabre Matrix guys are trying to do is they want to take emotions out of a, a process on, on defining a player's abilities. And you just can't do that. I think to a certain extent you can't do that because there are players that do better in tough situations, in, in game situations. And those are the ones you want. You want Jeff Bagwell at the plate, you know, here in Houston when there was a game on. I, I want Mike Trout at the plate when the game's on the line. Oh, yeah. If he fails three times in a row, that's okay. I know the next time he's going to get it done. Yeah. But he's going to do something to help you win the ball. I agree. And, and we talked about it earlier. They're trying to say, look, RBIs, they don't matter. Um, batting average doesn't matter. Um, but if you've ever stepped in the box, you know how important it is when there's a guy on second base and two outs. You know how important that at bat is. That's a different at bat. Then when you're, it's two outs, you're up 9-0, it's the eighth inning, your heart rate's at 40. In the other situation, you know tie ball game got second, two outs, you know, there could be 45,000 people that really want you to get that hit. There is actual pressure on that at bat, and there is a difference in that situation. And some guys can handle it, and some guys, uh, they, they, they let it get the best of them. Well, you're you're absolutely right about that, and that's what you want. You know, that in, in picking a good team, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for players. I had a third base coach that his best phrase I thought in describing players like that, he's a ball player, and mm. that was what he would say. And so we'd get down and say, well, maybe his numbers are aren't as great as somebody else, but he's a ball player. He's going to do something to help you win a game in a key situation. And, and you're absolutely right. Those situations matter, and they're important. And I actually believe that some of those people, if they're in baseball, they don't even believe their own rhetoric. And, mm. and I say that in not trying to slam anybody, but to say, look, if a guy hits 20 home runs, or let's just give him 30 home runs, and 
which is a pretty good number in today's baseball. 30 oh, home yeah. runs is pretty good. Mm -hmm. He'll make a lot of money. But if he only drives in 30 runs, if he doesn't drive in another run by a base hit all year long, then RBIs do matter. They, they won't like that guy on their team. If he strikes out every time there's somebody on base, strikeouts will become to matter, which they claim today strikeouts don't matter. But as long as your on-base percentage is high, they yeah, say. It's yeah. an out and so out, right? At some point, they matter. And the reason those guys don't believe strikeouts are important is because they've never managed a game, had the tying run or the winning run at third base with less than two outs, and you, your side strikes out. Strikeouts <laughs> matter, and you're throwing stuff against the wall, and, and you're, you're wanting to beat your players in the head. You know? yeah, oh yeah. All you got to do is hit it in the outfield, put it in play, yeah. and they win the ball yeah. game, and they're striking out. Strikeouts matter. I, you know, I remember you telling me the story about Hall of Famer. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Greg Biggio. Biggio, uh, yeah. He, I mean, he, he is a Hall of Famer. He's a great player. Yeah, he ran through a couple-week issue where he'd have a guy on third base and uh, less than two outs, and he would, he would hook the ball, hit a ground ball to third baseman almost every time. And, uh, you know, obviously he didn't do that all his career. It was a little blip on the radar, but that was a great story. Well, Please, he, let me, let, let's hear that story. It's more than two weeks. I, I, when I've taken over the club, it's more than two weeks. And Craig Vigio is a surgeon with a bat. He can mm. get the ball anywhere on the field he wants to, any pitch that he wants to, he can do it. But he did for it was several couple of months he was going through this deal, pitch and throwing ball, and he'd hit an absolute rocket right to third baseman. And I, I'd, he'd look at me when he'd go to the place, and I'd say, hit a fly ball center field. Hit a fly ball center field. <laughs> you know, the old adage is, it hit it to the opposite field, and it's going to go in the air. Yeah, almost yeah. If, all if, the if time. you're late, if you're a little bit late, you you go in the yeah, air. Yeah, yeah, it goes in the air. And so all you have to do is just take your approach to the middle of the diamond. You're exactly and right. You almost always will hit a fly ball. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I'd say, Craig, hit it to the middle of the diamond, and he'd go up there and duck hook one right. To throw. I mean, hit a <laughs> 200 mile an hour rocket yeah. when we get to rain. So I got so frustrated with him. And after a couple of months of this, he was. He was looking at me, the runner on third, and I said, hit a rocket right at the third baseman, just like that. Well, he goes up and he peels one out the center field. Oh, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. So after that, I learned I had to tell Craig the opposite of what I wanted him to do. It's and he so would do funny. it. He was uh, unbelievable. That's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> because, you know, what? It, it just shows, I mean, even a Hall of Famer, even a guy that is so good, it just shows how hard and how difficult this game can be. And it, they're the ebbs and flows of it, and it's such a good game well indeed and it, it can it can wear on you that's what happens you get into these ruts and sometimes you have to oh yeah outside the box oh yeah you gotta you you gotta be pretty mentally strong to get through a season with all the ups and downs especially in the big league especially with with the with the media and, and how the media is these days i mean they're panicking on the angels after uh five games this year you know they're they're ready to start selling off half the team and uh you know making trades but we'll, we'll get into angels a little bit later speaking of your playing career i just want to touch on another story that you told me you're very involved with the players union you know we talked about kurt flood and we talked about what was it 74 75 75, yeah, 76, right around yeah, there yeah 76 when, when creates you really you told me a story one day about how we got to the number of three years and then arbitration and six years free agency. And I'd, uh, I've never heard anybody tell a story like this before. So um, can you share a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah. And, and uh, I would, it, you know, it kind of gets lengthy. So I, I'll try to condense it in okay. some way because there's been several books written about this that are, uh, that are pretty good books. Okay. But, um, you know, <clears throat> number one, I went to college at Tennessee as I spoke and I was trained in, uh, <clears throat> I was in a labor class, and I'm in pro-management from my bias, from my education. So I was never a labor union guy. Mm -hmm. and, but when I got into baseball, the reserve clause made me, a, uh, that one-in-one -one contract, made me a union guy because I didn't think it was right. And yeah. so I was going to get involved in, in the labor negotiations between the players' union and the owners. And so when Peter Seitz had made the decision, it was a one-in-one Contract. Everybody at that moment in baseball had a one-year contract with a one-year option, and if you didn't sign that that contract, you played your option out, and you were a free agent. That's the way it was. Uh -huh. Well, we're in labor negotiations, and uh, Marvin Miller, who's the smartest guy in America at the time, was our our leader, mm -hmm. and the players association leader. And we had Bob Boone, and, and uh, I w was one of the guys that our Aaron Boone's brother, who's coaching the Yankees and they're managing the Yankees now. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a couple other guys on the negotiating team that were all pretty pretty sharp, pretty savvy guys. And so Bowie Kuhn, who was running 
the negotiation for Major League Baseball at the time, they come in and said, boys, we can't live with one and one. It'll disrupt the game. It'll take it all down. It'll destroy us all. And nobody wanted that. We didn't want that either. We didn't want everybody doing it. He said, so we need free agency 10 years. And so um, we, we huddle after that and we say, well, 10 years is not going not gonna to make it. We, we can't because 10 years, very few people made it to oh, 10 years oh, in yeah, those days. Yeah. So 10 years is not going to make it. So we're not going to do that. It's essentially no free agency at all. And so we're, we're back to one and one. And so Marvin Miller had done some analysis, and he says this. He says, gentlemen, he said, here's a, an interesting stat. He said, if a player gets to the big leagues and he makes it to six years of playing time, the odds of him playing the 10-year are really, really good. Mm-hmm. In other words, I don't remember the number, but it was like 75% of all players that got to six years ended up making 10 years. And what that translated to was the very best players made it to six years. Mm-hmm. And so what he was indicating, he never never came out and said, he said six years is a good number. Five or six years is a good number because only your very best players get to that number. So if you're going to give up free agency at one and one, which meant everybody was a free agent. And this is one of the interjections that I made because I fashioned myself as an amateur economist. And I said, now, guys, think about this a second. If everybody's a free agent, you know the law of supply and demand. If there's 200,000 bottles of water out there and you're dying for a bottle of water, you're not willing to give me any more than a nickel for a bottle of water. But Mm -hmm. there's one bottle of water and you're crossing the desert and there's 20 of you guys want that bottle of water, the price of that bottle of water goes up. Well, it's the same thing with a baseball player. Mm -hmm. If there's 10 second basemen on the the market and there's only five clubs that need a second baseman, the price goes down. If there's one second baseman on the market and he's Bobby Grinch and he's the best one, then the price goes up. If Mm -hmm. If there's only two teams that want you, the price goes up. They'll bid. And that's the way it will work. And so... I asked the question to the group. I said, do you think players would like maximum, maximum, maximum ability to move? That's at one and one. Or restricted ability to move, but to be able to maximize your dollars as yeah. a salary. And Bob Boone said, maximize your salary. Restrict mm-hmm. the movement. And so we agreed in that room, in that setting, that six years was probably a good number to be free agent. Well, that meant that all those players that weren't six years, that were under six years now we're going to get screwed. Yeah, oh yeah. They, they just lost. We were going to negotiate, negotiate away. And uh, the Dodger pitcher, I, I can't think now. Uh, oh, I'll have to think of his name, and I'll come up with me. Okay. Uh, he said he, he disagreed with that analysis, and he said, if you guys agree to that, I'll sue every one of you individually. I'll sue you individually. So among us players in the uh, – in the uh, uh, Negotiating, you know, back in our room, we couldn't. We were having a hard time agreeing ourselves on it, and so um, we wanted to go to six. The, the consensus wanted to go to sixes, but Mike Mike Marshall was who he was. Mike Marshall said, oh, yeah. "If you guys give up one and one, I'll sue you all individually. We're not going to do that." How many years did and, he have in at that time? And he had he had been a dominant pitcher for a few years. He was probably five or six okay. year pitcher, okay. but he was trying. I think Marshall truly was trying to say, wait a minute, well, everybody has one and one at the moment. Everybody has that right. Don't give that right away. Okay. I think he okay. was actually actually thinking in terms of that. Okay. And so it was Marvin Miller who said, gentlemen, maybe there's a way to, to get us out of our impasse here. He said, what if we allow arbitration at the end of third year? And what arbitration does, it will be a panel. And so for all those players that are given up one and one that are less than six years, they get to go to arbitration at three years, which is would have, the third year would have been your, your free agent year. And you get to use a free agent as, as a uh, comparison, yeah. as mm-hmm. a comp in trying to get an arbitrated salary. And <clears throat> so when you hear an owner say, and they used to say this. You don't hear it anymore. But when they said, and our owner at the Houston Astros said this, that arbitration was never meant to be able to allow a player to equate his salary to a, to a, a free agent. At boldface wrong. That's not true. Mm-hmm. I sat in the room, and I know what we said. Yeah. And we said, that's the re- that's how we'll settle. And that's how we got Mike Marshall to back off of suing everybody. Uh-huh. And that's how the, the three-year arbitration came up. And over the years, they changed a little bit to type A free agents and type B free agents yeah. and all that. But that's how that 
came in. It was a negotiated deal among ourselves. And so now we, we as the players, agree that that's what we will take. Time to, to sell the owners. Yeah. And so the next day when Bowie Coon comes in and we told him uh, 10 years is not going to float, and he says, okay, gentlemen, <clears throat> we think six years would be a good number. And all of us look at each other and go, we try to keep from laughing. Oh, because yeah, yeah. what we see it as is what you're doing is, is you're saying, all right, the very best players get to set the salary standard. And that's exactly what happened, even yeah, though yeah, none smart. of us really quite understood. I, yeah. I would be, I'd be lying if I said we all knew that the salaries were going to balloon because we didn't. We just thought salaries were going to be better. We didn't think they'd go to hundreds of thousands and millions. Nobody ever thought that. Yeah. But we thought they'd be better. So when Bowie Coon said six years, we all go, whoa. And then we bring up the arbitration deal. They agreed to that. And that's how we got to where it was. Man, that's amazing. Recently this year, I don't know if you've been watching what's been happening, but they're signing guys now. Man, if you put up one good year, they're trying to lock you up for, for you know, we, we had Acuna, Acuna with the um, uh, the Braves just signed a 10-year, an 8-year deal with two-year options, uh, eight-year, $100 million. One year he played. They got Yelich seven years, $49 million a couple of years ago. That's a bargain. So they're starting to – they want to eat up those arbitration years. Those arbitration years are super valuable for players. I mean, look at uh, Bregman, right? Bregman yeah, just Bregman signed, signed his son. $100 million. What, five-year extension, six years, something yeah. like that, right? And it's yeah. arbitration. It, it's binding If there wasn't arbitration. arbitration, it would yeah. be such a different story. And I think to, to, uh, to speak to the players on that, a lot of players are being wise. What, what happens in, in when, people, when you can start making a lot of money, and I've seen this when I've tried to counsel guys that are that are being drafted they want big numbers and my message to them always is play the game the numbers will come you will make money if you play the game just don't worry about trying to make a million or 10 million Mm -hmm. or 30 play the game you're they say numbers don't matter anymore they matter because you're because all of a sudden you'll you'll make a lot of money play the game and it will come to you it's the system's already set up you're going to make a lot of money if you play the game and by the way i I this message to the players you know i think that uh generally speaking a lot of the multi-year contracts has not worked out for the benefit of ownership so the players should be a bit grateful because I think in a lot of cases, more cases than not, the owners have ended up overpaying. The contracts have not worked out in the owner's benefit. The last few years of these eight, seven, eight, nine year contracts don't, players don't really perform very well in those contracts. So in my regard, I'm definitely pro player. I'm happy for everything the player makes, but I also see the argument on the owner side that I don't want to give a pitcher anything longer than a three-year contract. (laughs) I say that, but Verlander has been an absolute blessing in Houston, and he has proved to be a good a good buy. But still, they only gave him two years, didn't they? Well, he's 38 years old or something. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd like to thank today's guest, Phil Garner. I will be releasing the second part of our interview later on this week. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe. Rate us on iTunes. We're available on all your favorite directories. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeart. You can find us at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. And at Believe Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.